So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1385, How to Use Data to Drive Your Financial Decisions with Nick Majuli, author of the new book, Just Keep Buying. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It's not about that you shouldn't own any real estate. It's just like, that's just one piece of the puzzle. I don't want people just to think about that. And if you think, oh, I'm just going to own a house and that's it. Of course, you could do well with that or you could not. I mean, there it depends. There's so much. It's like buying a single stock. It's like, I'm going to take $400,000 and invest it into Apple. That's essentially what you're doing, except you're doing it with a house, right? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, I'm the daughter of a scientist. My dad has a PhD in physics. Growing up in our house, everything was about the data, the facts, reasoning. My mother, on the other hand, brought the emotions to the table, which I so appreciate. Having that blend helped me become sort of a well-rounded person. But I do appreciate numbers and facts. I couldn't do my job without them. And as a financial decision maker, I lean on historical facts and data and trends trends to inform how I make decisions. It's not the only thing that matters, but it helps. And today we have the best guest to walk us through some of the important data about investing, about real estate, to help us make more informed money choices. His name is Nick Majuli, and he's the author of a new book called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. A little bit more about Nick. He runs the website of Dollars and Data, which focuses on personal finance using data analysis. He's the chief operating officer for Riddle's Wealth Management. And in our conversation, we talk about what the data is telling him about the future of our economy, whether we should buy real estate or not, how to spend with more conviction. We even talk about how data can inform our spending decisions and lots more. Here's Nick Majuli. Nick Majuli, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you and congrats on your new book. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Your book is called Just Keep Buying. Your book covers a lot of terrain from real estate to savings to debt. What do you make of where we are right now in the current world economic landscape? I mean, yeah, the the economic landscape isn't looking great, despite the fact that, you know, uh, we don't have like a really high unemployment rate. So it's not hitting the job market in the same way that you would expect with like a recession or something like that. Um, but at the same time, like, and you're just like, how do you emotionally control for this? You have to like, look at the data. That's what I do. Right. And I think, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And that's the whole thing here. It's like, we're looking at historical evidence and that's kind of where I'm coming from to try and get people to like, you know, really calm down and realize this, this is a very normal thing that happens. And we need to reference history, not just because it's informative, but because we forget. Mm-hmm. We have to constantly remind ourselves about the past. And I, I, tell me a little bit about how your work overlaps the psychology of money. I'm sure, although, again, you're a data-driven analyst, the psychology of money must also be part of that, uh, a part of the way you come to your conclusions. 
Yeah, I think about psychology in the ways and how people behave, obviously. And I think if we had more controlled trials, like if we had more actual experiments we could run, I would be a lot more supportive of like a lot of psychological studies. But sometimes it's really tough to do. For example, one of the things people talk about is like mindset, your mindset matters. Of course, we know mindset matters. But how much does it matter? I don't know, right? What I would love yeah. to do if we could do this experiment, we can't. I don't think it's ethical or even possible. We have, you know, 10 people and we have two groups of people, 10 people over here and 10 in group. A, 10 people in group B, 10 of them follow one money mindset. The other 10 follow a different money mindset. Remember, they're identical in every other way. Like their incomes are the same or across the groups. Everything's, they're basically identical. It'd be great to even do identical twins and have one set of twins follow one group and the other set of twins follow uh, another mindset and just see where that plays out. But we can't run experiments like that. I wish we could, but that that would be the ideal way to really test a lot of these like money mindset, psychological things and how they affect um, people's behavior. We just don't know. So, we have to kind of go on what studies and what people say. And so, that's like, it's decent, but it's not a true experiment like in the scientific sense. Mm. So what is the data telling you as far as what we can expect from, let's just start with the financial markets? Yeah. So based on, you know, we have higher inflation, you know, yield curve inverted a couple months ago. Those two things alone tell you that like, you know, stock market returns are generally lower than, you know, expected for the next few years and they would be without those type of events. The That's the bad news. But the kind of good news is, well, what else are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do instead? Like, you're like, oh, I'll just go to bonds or cash. Well, the returns on those are even worse. So, it's like, mm-hmm. we're in a bad spot. That's not great. But like, there's not better options out there. It's not like, okay, every time this happens, we should just move to bonds. Like, go ahead and move to bonds. Like, bonds are getting crushed right now, worse than they've been crushed in a very long time. So, it's one of those things where like, you can think like, just because we know stocks are probably going to underperform, that doesn't mean that they're still not one of the best options out mm-hmm. there. Like, given, it's just, it's like the best worst option, right? Or, <laughs> you know, something like that. That's how I'm thinking about it right now. It's just not a, it's not going to be great probably for the next few years, but I, we don't actually know what's going to happen, but you know, what it said what the data shows it's not going to be great, but we don't really have options. There's not much you can do anyways. You just got to roll with the punches mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, roll with the punches. So to extract advice from that data, it's really just to hang tight. Yep. Because there is this the the pros, the experts, the investing experts, they're under a lot of pressure. They're losing money for their clients. And so what we often find in this in these moments are like announcements or papers or press releases from various you know investment houses like we're changing our strategy or we have a new we have new thoughts about whether you should really do a 60/40 mix. What do you make of that noise? I mean, it's just people like if you obviously if you don't have like principles you stick by, there's like people you'll you'll change a lot and it's tough. And of course, the the counter argument to that is like, well, as the information changes, I change my mind. What do you do? Right. That's kind of like the counter. I'm like, it's fair. Like, like you're not supposed to always have the fixed allocation your whole life. Like the, as information changes, you may want to change things. For example, I think 6040 was great historically. I think now it's much tougher with yields as low as they are because they're not producing the same income. Right. So you're not getting that the 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 return with low risk that you would have gotten. You could have, you could have got six percent back in like you know the 2000s on U.S. Treasuries. You're not getting that now. So because of that, like. I understand like maybe maybe it's 7525 is the new 6040 so to speak or something or the 8020 who knows it's really yeah. about your risk preferences but you you see what I'm getting at I am. And to reference your book, again, just keep buying. One of the principles in your book that I like that dovetails this investing convo that we're having is that investing is important because one of the reasons it's important is because it is the best way to replace your human capital with financial capital. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, Investing to replace your waning human capital. Yeah. So basically, you know, you start your career, let's say in your, you know, late teens, early 20s, maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't, doesn't matter. But you start 
your career and you have a long life ahead of you. And that's what your human capital is. You have a lot of time. You have you have maybe you have some skills you're building. You're going to build more skills, you know, over time. But you have a lot of time basically. And that's what that's your biggest asset when you're young, right? But when you're much older, let's say when you're 65 or 75, whatever, you don't have a lot of time. So you can't really work much anymore. Um, however, what you're supposed to do when you're, you know, 19, 20, whatever, is to start converting that time into capital and ways to save money so you can, you know, invest it and then have that capital start paying you, right? That's what dividends are from stocks, profits from businesses, things like that, or owning bonds and they're paying you an income stream as well, right? So that's the whole idea is like you're supposed to take this time that you have and convert it into financial capital. So once you don't have time when you're 65, 75, et cetera, you're, you, you, you're basically still working for yourself because all that money you saved is still working for you, right? That's kind of how I like to think about it. Um, you can like, you're like replacing yourself as like a financial asset. I know it's kind of weird to say this is like, cause we're people, but like, that's kind of what we're trying to do over time. And if you do it right, like you, you should be able to kind of do that if you can save for a long time and invest. So to put a pin on this convo around investing and fill in the blanks, uh, Nick, uh, as you f- see fit, but essentially uh, the market's going to do its thing. It's going through a cycle, invest for the long run. And, and rather than remapping your investment strategy based on what you're seeing happening in the market. Reflect on your allocation, but don't use this as an opportunity to change your thesis. Because then if you're really going to commit to that kind of action, you're going to be changing your thesis a lot. Because this is not abnormal, although it may feel abnormal for first-time investors to see where we are with the market, but this is par for the course. Yeah. yeah. And so any sort of... Anytime you want to make changes, you want to make them slowly. Because I think most of the big mistakes that investors make is very big moves. For example, imagine it's February 2020 and you're like, I'm going to cash. I This is the world's coming to an end. Early March hits, you go to cash, right? And then obviously the market crashes, you look like a genius, but you sit in cash and then six months later, we're at a new high and you're still in cash, right? That's the that the 100 to zero type stuff. Oh, I'm fully invested till I'm fully out of the market. That's the scary stuff. If you're a little worried, you're like, hey, I don't know if I'm gonna have enough money. Maybe you sell down a little bit of your assets and you add a little bit to your cash cushion. Maybe there's, I'm okay with small tweaks. I'm not saying people should never change their allocation, never make tweaks, right? I completely agree with it. Uh, Cliff Asinus calls this sin a little, right? You just want to have little things you can do. That's fine. It's just, it's the big major moves where people can make big mistakes over the long haul. And that's what you have to really avoid. That are emotionally charged, right? Well, speaking of emotionally charged, the housing market for the past two years has been like nothing we have seen. And by that, I mean these rabid buyers. And we can't really blame them because the supply has just been historically low. Uh, there's been a huge appetite for ownership with the where interest rates have been over the last two years. Not so much now, but if you were in the market in 2020 to 20, let's say early 2022, you were going to probably get a mortgage for less than 4%. And so all of that fueling home ownership trends, obviously to the pandemic, people want to get out and, and have more space. But if you were today to look at the data and where it's charting, where it's trending, as far as like an investment or a, a, a vehicle for building wealth, as home ownership has often been marketed as, what's your take? I mean, you can definitely build uh, wealth in real estate as an investment property. Still? Yeah, it's definitely where prices are today. Um, I, I mean, obviously prices are high, and so like we don't know what's going to happen. Like they could get higher, they could. Grow. I mean. 
for most of history, I mean, the real house price, I mean, before the 2000s, before we had this huge first run up with 08, you know, all that stuff that happened, right? The crash happened. Before all that, you know, re- real real estate returns moved up 0.6% a year, like real after adjusting for inflation. So real estate was a very slow growing asset. So it's not something that has built a ton of wealth for people. However, because it's usually someone's biggest financial purchase, it is still like a store of wealth for a lot of families. So for me to say, oh, you should never own real estate is kind of ridiculous because most people own real estate. Even the, the homeownership in the US is still 67%, right? So the question is, it's not about that you shouldn't own any real estate. It's just like, that's just one piece of the puzzle. I don't want people just to think about that. And if you think, oh, I'm just going to own a house and that's it, of course, you could do well with that or you could not. I mean, there it depend, there's so much. It's like buying a single stock. It's like, I'm going to take $400,000 and invest it into Apple. That's essentially what you're doing, except you're doing it with a house, right? So you don't have the diversification, right? And that's the thing I'm more worried about. I'm less worried about like, which which what thing you're in. Like, I'd rather you go and spend that money and put it into a REIT because you're going to have it at least a broadly diversified real estate exposure versus your particular house. Like anything could happen to a particular area where like, oh, I spent all this money and now I can't sell this house at this price anymore. And so we're going to see what happens going forward. Obviously, with interest rates as high as they are, it's much harder for people to like sell and move and get a new mortgage and then pay 6% when you have like 3% locked in. It's a really, it's a tough thing for a lot of people. So we're going to just have to wait and see what happens. But like, you know, is like question is like, is now a good time to buy? People have been asking that for forever. And, you know, the best time to buy was, you know, five years ago when prices were cheap, right? So, but who knows? I mean, who knows? They could keep going up. I have no clue. We could have more inflation for the next couple of years. And then it's like, oh, you think prices are crazy now? Imagine three, four years from now, they could yeah. be even crazier, right? Or they can come down. I just don't know. You're trying to have, have me guess the future. It's tough. Well, there's more in your book on chapter seven, only buy a home when the time is right. And mm-hmm. I will say that even the most aggressive real estate agents who you may think like, all they want to do is to have you buy a house, they've given some pretty, to me at least on this show, some really um, objective advice. And I think correct advice, which is that you we often get caught up in sort of the timing, as you point out, as well as, oh, well, this will this pay off as far as an investment? Maybe, maybe not. But what you can only control is your capacity to pay that monthly payment every month for the next, you know, let's say 20, 30 years. If you can do that, adjusting for, you know, job loss and economic fluctuations in your household. That's what matters. That's the bottom line. If you can make that payment, you know, because the argument is, is that you're going to get more bang for your buck when you own versus renting, because maybe you'll get some tax breaks, you'll get more space. It depends on your region, but focus less on these macro external factors that you can't control and more on what you can, which is your affordable factor, your affordability factor, you know, settle with that. I agree. I, I think buying a home like for a residential property, not an investment property, is more of a personal like lifestyle decision than it is an investment choice. And you need to think that way. Because a lot of times you have to remember, yeah. oh, is this going to be a good investment? Let's say your property doubles. Well, it's very likely that every other property doubled too. So you sell it, but you can't eat that equity, so to speak, yes. right? unless you move to a much cheaper place. So there's ways you can earn some of that equity, but you have to really change your lifestyle. The question is, do you want to do that? Like if you live near, let's say your parents and you're having children and now their grandparents of your children are there, like, do you want to then move somewhere else just so you can, you know, get 50 grand in equity out of your home. Like you have to think about those type of things. So I wouldn't look at it as an investment necessarily. It can be, but don't bank on it in that way. Yes. And remember, if you're listening to this podcast and you grew up in the eighties, like I did, and your parents owned their home, uh, their interest rate was probably double digits and then they could refinance it. But, you know, people who are zoning in on that interest rate and going, Oh, that's it. You know, I can't anymore. It's not, it's not worth it. Um, history as as you well you know as you're the expert here uh, we'll tell you a different story let's talk about spending i love that you dedicate a little bit in your book on 
our guilty pleasures. Uh, and the chapter four, you have an interesting technique, which is that it's called the 2x rule to eliminate spending guilt. Can you elaborate? You know, if you ever want to splurge on yourself, now for every person, the splurge is going to be different. For some person, it might be $100, someone else might be $1,000, whatever it is. If you feel like a splur- it's a splurge, it's a splurge, right? So yeah. if you feel like you want to splurge on something and you're feeling guilty about like, oh, should I spend, you know, $200 on this nice handbag or do I want to spend, you know, $500 on these concert tickets, whatever it is, take that amount of money and then save double Right. So if you're going to spend $200 on a handbag, take another $200 and invest it or donate it. There's different things you can do. You can invest it in, you know, um, an income producing asset like a stock ETF or something like that, index fund, or you can donate it to somebody. You know, that's, that's another way to kind of like unguilt yourself basically. Cause I feel like we're very, our culture is very guilt heavy on money and like especially spending yeah. decisions. Why are you spending that thing? You know, there's these whole shows where you have people say, should I spend $500 on this thing? It's like, it, we shouldn't be in this guilt trip level all the time. It's like, okay, if you want to, sh- if you really want it badly enough, you'll be able to save 2X for it. That's my, it's a very mm-hmm. simple strategy. I've used it a lot and I don't worry about spending guilt. I'm like, oh, should I spend money? I'm like, no, then I'll just go spend another $500 and invest it. So it's like half for, half for you, the other half for future you. That's how you can think about if you're investing that money, right? So you're like, at least if I'm splurging on myself now, I'm going to be splurging on myself later through this investment. That's kind of how I think about it mentally. So I hope that helps. Yeah. I mean, look, businesses do this to attract customers, whether it's like buy a pair of eyeglasses and we'll donate a pair. I think the whole thing is like, we're so guilted. And when we spend like, we obviously worked hard for our money, right? So it's like, we can't spend it on ourselves now. It's like kind of crazy. So it's like, we have to come up with, it's sad that I even have to bring, like I have to come up with a trick like this to get us to get through this. But like, I've seen it happen. I've, I guilt myself too, right? Until I start finding tricks like this to stop guilting myself over how I spend my money, you know? And that's so much of the personal finance advice out there, though, right, Nick, which is, you know, stop spending money on the latte. And if you would just, you know, spend less on this and that. And it's part of a a problem, I think, that our our industry has in sort of how we deliver advice. And there's a a section in your book that talks about spending is not the issue, actually. It's uh, income. And this is advice that I would like our legislators to uh, take to heart. And, and rather than giving us like a gas tax holiday, um, why don't they increase wages, right? So that we can actually keep up with inflation. But tell us on a personal level, uh, the advice that you have for those of us who want to, let's say in this inflationary moment, feel like we're coming out at least head above water. It's not about spending. It's about income. Yeah, I think the if you look at the data, and this is where I'm saying like the data is kind of runs this. It's like look at the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics. They have all this data on consumer expenditures and how much people are spending based on like income level, for example. And you find like I show in the book, like here's how much someone's spending on rent, food, etc. And I'm like, where are they going to cut? Like these aren't extraordinary amounts. Like there's not, you know, it's like people in the bottom 20% aren't spending $5,000 a month on their rent, right? It's like there's no, you know, there's not much to cut, right? It's just there's not enough dollars coming in. That's the story. Right. And so they try and guilt trip people and like, oh, reuse your dental floss or make your, you know, soap <laughs> at home or, you know, make your coffee at home or don't drink coffee at all. Like to save money. It's like, of course, that can work, but it's not a sustainable long term solution. That's not going to get you out of that situation. You have it has to come from income. And like the 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 most positively correlated thing with savings rate is income. Like as your income goes up, your savings rate goes up. This is true in every data set I've seen that on cross-sectional data on, you know, on American consumers. And it's because it's obvious. It's much easier to save when you have more money coming in. Like, you know, if I, if I 10x your income tomorrow, are you going to spend 10 times more on food? Or are you going to spend 10 times more on housing? Probably not. You will probably spend more on housing, but 10 times more, probably not, right? So it's like, because of that, the difference is as your income grows, your spending doesn't grow with it, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's where all that savings comes from, right? And so 
that's what I'm trying to get people to focus on. Of course, it's not easy to raise your income. I'm not saying that. I talk about this in the book. It takes years to kind of do that type of stuff, but that's where you have to focus. Sitting here and nickel and diming yourself, that's not, that's, that's more guilt. Once again, it's more guilt you're getting yeah. into and that's, you're wasting time being guilted and being psychologically distracted by that versus just like, okay, maybe you can't afford it and you have to like put it on a credit card. That's terrible. I don't want people to use credit cards. Trust me. But if that's what you need to do to then kind of get yourself motivated to actually earn income to get out of that hole, that's what you need to do. That's my opinion, right? And so trust yeah. me, I don't want people putting money on credit cards and 20% interest. Of course, I don't want people doing that. At the same time though, that may be someone's only choice, right? To get out of their really tough situation. But let's not get the government off the hook here either, right? And and companies, let's in the private sector to increase uh, their pay. I, I worry about what does the data say about recessions and where wages go in recessions? Because I think some that's something that we can hypothesize. We could say, well, in recessions, right now there's a little bit of employees employees feel like they have a little bit of power right now to negotiate. There was that great resignation last year and there's still a lot of openings in certain sectors and and some employers, maybe not so much in crypto and tech, but some employers are looking to fill positions. They can't. So those workers may have some leverage in asking for more benefits or, or pay. But as we get deeper into an economic downfall and whatever, call it a recession, where does that leave the bargaining power for workers? I think it's honestly been different in every recession. In some recessions, it's like, okay, for example, 08, it was not good because you don't have bargaining power because no one's hiring. Everyone's firing people, basically. A lot of people lost jobs then, right? So there was like wages were not, you know, shooting up. But there's probably cases where, you know, we're in a recession, but like, you know, there's supply issues. And like right now, there's people are trying to hire. Like the, if you actually look at the data, it's not like we have a huge unemployment rate right now, even though everyone's like, aren't we in a recession, but we don't have a big unemployment rate? What's going on? So it's one of those things. I think the, the more important thing, like, trust me, I, of course, I would like like it if companies, you know, raised wages and did all this stuff, especially for low income workers. But at the end of the day, like that's not something that like one person can do, right? And even if one person, like there's people like, remember Henry Ford went out and said, I'm going to pay my workers double of whatever everyone else is getting paid. And so you can start trying to set an example, but it's very rare. There's very few, you know, Henry Fords out there trying to fight for like the common worker. So as a result, you're basically, you have to kind of do it yourself. You have to say, okay, what can I do to raise my wages? You can yeah. sit there and wait for someone else to raise your wage. And don't get me wrong, that would be great if they did that. At the end of the day, though, you can say, well, what can I do to like get different skill sets or find maybe a, a side hustle or something such that I can raise my own wages myself. And I think that's a little bit more empowering. And I think it's 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 going to be better fit your skill set anyways, right? Because I don't know, all the people listening to this have very different skill sets. And for me to be like, okay, well, let's just hope they raise, you know, um, you know, wages for, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of a just a random job. Like, I, you know, let's say we're going to raise wages for, um, let's see what my mom's a loan processor. Let's say we're going to raise wages for loan processors, right? Or something, or limo drivers or whatever it is, right? Like, it, we don't know if that's going to happen, right? And that's very specific to an industry. It's much better to be like, hey, what can I do to like raise my income? What yeah. type of skills do I like to develop and, and focus on mm -hmm. that, I think. Before we wrap, let's touch on retirement, Nick, uh, and your thesis that retirement is about more than money. Um, is that to suggest that maybe we're overdoing it as far as how much we think we need to have saved by, we, by say, our 60s? There's like that always that $2 million number that gets thrown around, uh, the average amount of money that the average American is going to need to have a comfortable retirement. And of course, let's be honest, who's sharing that number? It's the, uh, the brokerages. They want us to give us, give them, give them our money. Um, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, on the, the average amount to save, I mean, every person is going to be different, right? It's really, everything comes back to your spending at the end of the day, like for how much you need for retirement, right? It comes back to your spending. And I think 
people probably need less than they think. And there's a couple of reasons why I say that. So one of those reasons is obviously Social Security and Social Security will be there. It may not be there in the same amount. Maybe they're going to delay the retirement age, things like that. Um, that's one piece of it. The other thing too is if you actually look at the data, most retirees, when they pass away, they leave behind a good amount of money. I think the average inheritance or, or yeah, the bequest or whatever you want to call it when you know, someone in their 60s is like $300,000. Now, of course, that's on average, right? That's not the median. So it'd be better if we had the median. But still, it's like people end up not spending down their money. So I think if you actually look at a lot of the retirement data, you know, um, only one in seven retirees, this is based on some of the data I was, I've looked at, um, only one in seven retirees is actually spending down their principal. Most are just living off of their investments and Social Security alone, right? So like mm-hmm. that's saying they're not, you know, if that means if you had wow. and one of the one of the more shocking things is from Mike, uh, Michael Kitsey's studies, like if you had, you know, what doesn't matter what money you have, imagine you're just using the 4% rule every year, right? You're more likely after 30 years of using the 4% rule to have 4X your wealth than to see wow. your wealth drop below where you started. So if let's say you start with a million, I'm just going to do this for to make the math easy. Yeah. Start with a million dollars. After 30 years of you know pulling 4% out every year, 4% rule, 60-40 portfolio, right? After 30 years, you're more likely to have 4 million than be a low, below a million, right? So I think wealth keeps growing over time. And even in a diversified portfolio that like, there's a lot of people who are like, okay, I only have this much. I'm going to run out of money. And most people haven't run out of money. There's right. very little evidence for that. So don't get me wrong. If you don't have enough cash saved away, you're it's going to be tough. Like there's no way around that. I can't make the math work in that way, right? Yes. But if you have a lot of money and you're following like a 4% rule and you can do that pretty easily, you'll probably be fine. And I don't know what they're calling it, but I'm seeing some financial pros talk about online how they're going on cruise control with their retirement. So it's like once you reach a certain amount of money in your 401k, like you can stop contributing because it'll just keep compounding in theory. And if you have another 10, 15 years until you need to tap it, you're going to be okay. This idea that I have to just keep contributing until my last breath at my desk uh, at work is not necessary in some cases. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it depends on a lot of things. For example, if you're getting a match, I would contribute at least to the match because that's free money. I mean, it's kind of hard to be free money. So that's one thing I would say, like at least get to the match. If you're going above the match, then we we can get into, there's a lot of nuance there. And so I usually don't recommend going above the match. I even talk about this in the book a little bit, but that's one piece of it. The other, the other question is like, okay, what are you going to do with that money anyway? So let's say you, you're, you're contributing your 401k and now you're not, are you spending all that money? Then like, that's probably worse for you, right? All else equal, right? You might as well say it. I, don't know, I can you spend my money it? in some fun ways. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you want to spend it, that's fine. But then it's like you're not saving; you have less of a cushion, right? So it's really about. Yeah, there's so many factors of that type of example, but I agree, I kind yeah. of agree with what you're saying. Well, you brought it up a little bit, which is this idea of the wealth transfer, and that is something that I hear coming down the pipeline. I think I don't know what's it like by twenty. 40, 2050, there's going to be trillion dollar wealth transferred from the boomers to the Gen X and Gen Zers and Gen Yers. And that could potentially be a great thing for that generation who is buried in student loan debt, can't buy a home, but uh, I guess when mom and dad go away, like they're going to get the money. And not, of course, every this is going to be exclusively white Americans because that's who's holding a lot of that wealth. Mm-hmm. Let's just uh, call that out. What do you, what, what, any um, thoughts on that in terms of how it may impact personal wealth in the future? Yeah. So I think one of the things they talk about with millennials is millennials own less percentage of the entire, like, 
you know, wealth of the United States than, you know, the prior generations did. And it's definitely true. Um, the one thing, though, is like the pie is a lot bigger now, so to speak. So we have a smaller slice of a bigger pie. And if you actually control for that and just for population size and everything, we're actually pretty similar to boomers, I think, where they were at this age. And I've kind of I do that a little bit in the book. Huh. I think it's like chapter two or three. I talk about that. It's not perfect. Trust me, there's a lot of things that are different. And I don't think they're exactly the same. I think it's much tougher today than it was for boomers for on a host of reasons. But I want to get into that here. But, you know, just what you're talking about with, okay, all this money's going to be passing down. That's great. But how long is that going to take? That's going to take another, that's going to be the next 10, 15 years. And most of that's going to go to Gen X, if we're being honest, right? Because they're the next generation. Millennials are kind of a, it's like how many millennials have boomers as their parents? Very few, right? It's like most of you have probably Gen X as your parents, right? So because of that, there's obviously, you know, everything's kind of mixed, depends. But like my grandparents are boomers, for example, right? And so that's the kind of thing we're going to see that probably trickle into Gen X first and then to millennials. And so obviously that starts happening. That's going to change things. Um, That's going to change like how money's being spread out, all sorts of consumer decisions. Yeah, but that's going to be happening over the next, I think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see the biggest wealth transfer in in history of humans. I mean, this is not just the US, this is the world. This is what's happening. It's just we have more wealth than ever and we're just passing it down and down and down and as long as we don't have destructive wars and things that destroy that wealth we're going to be the wealthiest set of humans in in world history crazy but it could also lead to inflation of course all that extra money in the market i guess it's it's like a good problem for some people like oh i have too much money now i don't know what to do yeah i will I guess it's it's all about like what it, you know money is just money is just a number right it's about what's actually produced whether that's real estate whether that's businesses whether that's things that are doing things productive that allow you to kind of live your life that pay income so you can keep living like whatever that is it's really about production like that's the thing we really care about money is just a simple way to understand world production because I can't I don't want to be like oh this year we had ten thousand pineapple or ten billion pineapples and five hundred thousand houses like if you add all that up it's too complex it's much easier to be like oh our GD our global GDP was you know a hundred trillion dollars or whatever it is I don't know I mean, it's probably less than that. But it's some it's some number, right? So you have some like global GDP number. It's much easier just to give you a single dollar amount, right? So um, that's what's funny. Well, Nick, great to have you on the show. Thanks for stopping by. Congratulations on your book, Just Keep Buying. It's always nice to sit down with somebody that has fresh, forward-thinking advice, particularly advice that's rooted in data, but also a really great sensibility. Appreciate you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Nick for joining us. His book again, it's called Just Keep Buying. And I'll see you back here on Friday for our Ask Farnoosh segments, which you may or may not know is now available on YouTube on Fridays as well. So if you want to hear and see me, you can also watch the podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash CNET money. Until next time, I hope your day is so money. Money.